Hello there, and welcome to this next episode of What You May Have Mythed. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode, delving into Greek mythology for the one and only time in this series, because this week we are journeying to a new country. We are staying on the European continent and travelling to somewhere whose surrounding countries we have visited, but now we are crossing the border and entering Belgium. Yes, Belgium, a country full of history and folklore. Now, some of you may be familiar with Belgian folklore, but I will admit that I knew very little before I started writing this episode. But there is quite a rich history of folklore in this country, and these tales include all the favourites of Northern European mythology. Goblins, elves, nightmares, werewolves, and the Flying Dutchman. If any of these characters tickle your fancy, then let me know, and I will get a short episode out there regarding them for you. The story of today is quite similar to that of another famous story from mythology, but which one came first I'm not sure. See if you can figure out which legend I mean before the end of the episode. Anyway, I hope you find this story entertaining. The Golden Dragon of Borinage There is a certain area of Belgium that used to be called Borinage, and it is here that they rather enjoy digging up coal. It used to be that the city of Mons was the central hub of this extraction of sparky substance, and in this city they liked to celebrate the triumph of a brave knight over a fearsome dragon. Now before you go picturing a bog-standard dragon in your minds, this one looked rather different to most. The skin of this beast was pure gold, and its scales were like armour. He had such power that entire castles quaked when he went by, and the inhabitants of those castles cowered in terror, and their trousers grew rather damp. The dragon possessed the powers of all the other animals of the world, no matter where on the planet they made their home, whether that be on the land, in the sky, or in the seas. He had the roar of the most fearsome lions, the wings of the most terrible birds of prey, the claws of the most vicious bears, and the sheer power of a crocodile. As he flew through the sky, his wings cracked like thunder, and his nose could sniff out blood better than a bloodhound. In the water, he was as deadly as a shark, and planted all over his head were horns and antlers, not dissimilar to those of the rhinoceros and stags. I could go on comparing this monster to other animals, but I think you get the gist that all in all, everything about him was hideous. But what really set this behemoth apart from his peers was a spectacular jewel embedded in his forehead. It was believed that this jewel had the same worth as that of all the world's diamonds, rubies and emeralds. The light held within this jewel was so bright that even on the darkest of nights it lit the land around him as he scoured the land looking for maidens to consume. Such was this beast's terror 
that it was as if every creature that had ever previously existed throughout history and would ever exist in the future had all been thrown together into a boiling pot, and this thing had been the product. The Romans, who had decided that they quite liked the area and thought it would look lovely on their maps of the Empire, quite quickly discovered that if this beast was allowed to live, then they would find themselves without any of their daughters. And even worse, well, no, slightly less worse, the noises that the dragon made during the night, howling, hissing, honking, hollering and harumphing, was so loud that no one got a moment of sleep. Kind of like if you have a cat, but a thousand times worse. But they soon realised that the most dangerous time was when the dragon made no noise at all, when he was quiet and nowhere to be seen, when he was hunting for his prey. No one let their girls out after nightfall for fear of them being devoured. This dragon was always hungry, but he was also rather picky about what he ate, or rather, who he ate. Only females. Never men, boys, pigs, goats, chickens, cows, or, gods forbid, a vegetable. Unless, of course, there were no maidens and the only food was the aforementioned menu. He would snaffle girls when they were out picking flowers, harvesting the fields, walking with friends and bathing in the river, and drag them away to his lair where he would feast. He could move with such speed that even the swiftest men were outstripped by him, and if a rider on horseback attempted to catch him, then the dragon would lazily flap his wings and vanish into the sky. One could always tell where the dragon had been, as the acrid smell of burning brimstone lingered long after the beast had vanished. Many miles from anywhere, the dragon made its home in a dark cave, its ground littered with the bones of his many female victims. The bones of the few other dining items that didn't often take his fancy had been tossed into a nearby pit. He was a cautious beast and was always on the lookout for those who tried to stop his pilfering ways. His nose was remarkable as it could smell a man from many miles away, and so whenever he left his cave, he pointed his snout to the four winds and gave a sniff, just in case someone felt brave. Yes, this dragon was fearsome and terrible, but it did not like things being thrown at it. Especially when those things were arrows, spears, rocks, sticks, knives, catapult missiles, vegetables and turds. He did have weak spots, just like any beast. His eyes and his arm and leg pits seemed to be the most likely to succumb to an assault. Such was the terror created by the dragon that the Roman general decided that the man who captured or killed it could marry his daughter. He could also be allowed to take and keep any of the gold and jewels that encrusted its flesh under two conditions. He must first provide enough jewels so as to decorate his daughter's coronet for the wedding, and that the large jewel in the dragon's forehead should be handed over to himself. Despite the promise of such wealth and high station, not a single person took up the challenge. At this time there was a chap called Rufinus, who by all standards was an exemplary fellow. He was brave, a great soldier, and an all-round nice guy. It also happened that he was in love with the aforementioned daughter of the general. At the time the general set forth his terms regarding the beast, Rufinus was nowhere near to hear it. In fact, he wasn't even in the same country. He had gone back to Rome in order to purchase a gold wedding ring for his beloved, as well as some jewels and fine clothing. However, tragedy struck a week before his return to Belgium. The general's daughter was taken by the dragon whilst out walking and carried off to his ghastly lair to be devoured. 
Back in the General's home, everybody was very sad. Both the General and his wife were inconsolable and wondering if anyone would ever fight this awful dragon. Meanwhile, all the people of the town were wondering why the General himself didn't go and fight it, you know, given that he was a military general and that he should be avenging his own daughter's kidnapping. Oh yes, that's right, many Roman military generals were politicians who paid for the privilege and had not actually been brave fighting men. Some things never change. Unaware of the tragedy, Rufinus was returning to the city when he met a Belgian chap who was very famous for his skill with a bow. He too was in grief because his only daughter had been taken by the dragon whilst she was walking with the general's daughter. He told Rufinus about what had happened. The beast took them both. Then they may yet be alive. My friend, we have a chance to find them before the dragon devours them. Your skill with a bow is well renowned. Will you join me in the hunt? I would do anything for my only child. Join you, I shall. And so the pair readied themselves. Rufinus made sure that his sword was as sharp as it could be and mounted his horse. The Belgian archer filled his quiver and, being an accomplished tracker, started out ahead scouting for the dragon. Soon the archer found fresh tracks heading to the south. With a favourable wind, the pair cautiously followed the trail, dodging off the path at the slightest movements. Then, one evening, they were downwind from the mountains where they believed the dragon to be dwelling, when a smell hit their noses and they balked. Putrid, metallic and thick, it made their eyes water and their noses sting. They were definitely going the right way. As darkness fell, this dynamic duo, who had continued to follow the smell despite its rancid odour, looked up into the mountains. In the shadows of a high cliff they saw two globes of burning yellow light, and centred just above them a third light, twinkling from the light of the stars. And then it seemed to the two men that the spots of light grew in size. The dragon was hauling its bulk out of the entrance to its cave and dragging itself slowly down the mountain, moving as if it had just been woken. The beast, slowly yet relentlessly, brought its hulking body down the side of the mountain, its head swivelling to and fro, never still, whilst its vast nose sniffed in all directions, trying to catch the scent of something that shouldn't be there. Its tongue flickered out, tasting for flesh in the air claws lashing out at anything that moved, be it grass, leaves or trees. The dragon was slowly but inexorably moving towards where our two heroes were hidden, but had not yet picked their scent. They dared not breathe, for fear that it would hear them with its incredible senses. Worried that the horse would spook and make a noise, without a sound they opened one of their flasks of strong-smelling wine and poured some into the horse's nose. The burning in the horse's nose was akin to that, I imagine, if someone poured whiskey into your nose. But at least the horse could now think of nothing but the wine in its nose, rather than the dragon bearing down upon them. Their hearts were pumping so fast they were terrified that the dragon would hear their beats inside their chests. As the dragon drew nearer, Rufinus slowly lowered his spear, and the Belgian slowly knocked an arrow onto his bow. He was aiming for the monster's glowing eyes, while Rufinus's goal was to launch his spear deep into that terrible moor. With the thought of both the glory of defeating and ridding the land of this horrible monster and the inevitable respect and love they would receive for doing so, 
The two men stood their ground, weapons poised, their blood thrumming in their ears. They would back down, no matter what. Closer and closer the dragon boomed, but then it stopped. It pushed its front legs off the ground and stood high on its haunches, its tail swinging violently behind it. It took all the archer's will not to loose his arrow at the dragon, but he knew that he would not be able to hit its eye from where he stood. It would be like shooting a fly from such a distance that it looked like a speck of dust. And then the dragon roared, and the world around them trembled. Leaves fell from the trees, rabbits burst from their burrows and fled, the ground shook with the sheer volume of the bellow. The scales of the dragon clattered together, and the mountains from which he had come quaked, giant avalanches erupting. But Rufinus and the Belgian did not move. Neither did the horse, who was still stunned at the burning wine up its nose. As the echoes fell silent and the dragon's front feet fell back to earth with an almighty crash, the archer, in barely more than a hushed breath, said, "'Shall I shoot?' "'Aye, but mind your aim. Shoot for the closest eye, so as to be more sure of a hit,' was Rufinus's reply. The archer drew back his bow, slow and steady, so as not to attract the dragon's attention. He focused his aim on the nearest eye of the dragon, the left, and released his arrow. The shaft made no sound as it arced through the air and pierced the dragon in the centre of his pupil. If the roar from a moment ago was loud, then the howl of agony from the dragon was nothing short of biblical. The ground beneath their feet shook so violently that Rufinus was almost thrown from his horse and trees around them began to fall. Taking a tighter hold on the reins, Rufinus dug his heels into the side of his horse and charged, and as he did so, the dragon's one good eye spotted him. It spread its wings to their full extent, reared again onto its hind legs before bringing them down with a boom that shook the world and began to charge at Rufinus with fury in its eyes. Most would have cowered and fled at the sight of this leviathan barreling towards them. Many would have died of fright on the spot, but not Rufinus. As his trusty steed galloped headlong towards the dragon, Rufinus drew back his spear ready to launch. The gap between the two was getting smaller and smaller. The dragon opened its maw, blood-covered teeth baring themselves. Smoke began to stream from the beast's nostrils. When they were nearly upon one another, the dragon's jaws pulled back further, as though it was going to swallow man and rider both. But Rufinus pulled his arm back and fired his spear deep into the yawning chasm of teeth, blood and fire. The spear flew so true it sank itself far into the dragon's throat, where it continued at great speed and buried itself into the beast's heart. The roar of the dragon became another howl of agony, but less powerful than the last, more mournful. As it whimpered in pain, Rufinus drew his horse round and pulled out his sword, but he had no need for it. The dragon gave one more deep sigh, and the light in its eyes went out. Rufinus pulled himself off the horse just as the archer made his way out of the trees towards the carcass. "'Well, that was easy,' said Rufinus, and the pair burst into laughter, astounded that they had not only killed the beast, but come out of the encounter completely unscathed. Using his sword, Rufinus knelt over the dragon's head and prized the great jewel from it. It was the most beautiful jewel he had ever laid eyes on. But he knew that he, as a humble soldier, could not keep it so he would offer it to the general, the father of the girl he hoped to marry. 
The archer, for himself, prized five of the gold scales that covered the dragon's breast so as to prove his ability to the general. Then the pair, Rufinus on his horse and the archer on foot, made for the hills and the cave where they had spotted the dragon's murderous eyes. In the cave they miraculously found not only Rufinus's beloved and the archer's daughter, but four other girls who had been taken and not yet devoured. Clearly the dragon liked to make sure he had a supply ready to go at any point. On their return home, and with the great news they brought, the general was all too happy to allow Rufinus to marry his daughter, and he sent his best goldsmiths off to salvage an almighty dowry from the dragon's corpse. Such was his praise and honour for the soldier that the fiery jewel that Rufinus had given him he gave to his daughter to be placed in her coronet for the wedding. The wedding indeed took place a week later, and who should be the maid of honour? But of course the archer's daughter, who had been with her during their terrible imprisonment with the dragon, and the four other rescued girls were her bridesmaids. And so the land was saved from the monstrous dragon by Rufinus and the archer, who became dear friends for the rest of their lives. Hmm, I wonder which tale that is similar to. St George and the Dragon, anyone? Not identical, but there are definitely several similarities to that famous legend. Did one influence the other? Did one come first and evolve over time into the other? I'm not sure, in all honesty, but it is still a good story in my mind. Now, next week we are staying on the European continent and visiting somewhere we have been before, but this time we aren't delving into their mythology, but rather their folklore. A subtle difference, but a difference nonetheless. In the meantime, if you are a new listener, then feel free to go through the previous episodes and get stuck into them. There is no order to these stories, unless it's the two-parters, obviously, so you can listen to them in any order you like. And if you have listened to them all before, then you can always go back and listen to your favourites again. And remember that after this series is concluded, I'm going to put a shorter episode out there every week regarding mythology, legends, folklore and history. So if there is a myth or a historical story you would like to hear, then get in touch with me on TikTok or Instagram where you can find me under what you may have mythed, or drop me an email at themythspodcast at gmail.com. For now, farewell, and you shall hear me in a week's time for the next episode of What You May Have Mythed.